We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I'm Emma Waddington, a clinical psychologist in Singapore. And I'm Chris McCurry, a clinical psychologist in Seattle, Washington. And today we are most privileged to have our guest, Michelle Dropkin. She is the founder and director of the CBT Center of Central New Jersey, a licensed clinical psychologist in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. She's held various roles as a behavioral scientist in industry, including leading the development and deployment of behavior change interventions at Johnson & Johnson. She was also a program coordinator for the Department of Veterans Affairs. She is the author of the forthcoming book, The Motivational Interviewing Path to Personal Change, the essential workbook for creating the life you want, coming soon from New Harbinger. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Excellent, as are we. So, motivational interviewing. Tell us about that. What is is that? (laughs) Yeah. You know, if, if you get the book, you'll know that the first chapter is motivational. What? Because it just is not what I would call face valid at all. And so really understanding what motivational interviewing is, it, it, it's actually kind of hard to describe, right? But, you know, I always like to say it is not the Tony Robbins of psychotherapy. So it's not about really motivating and really just, you know, giving a motivational speech to someone. It's really just much more about, we like to say it's a way of being with the people we work with. And and if you're thinking about this book for yourself or for someone else, it's just a way of approaching change that is much more empowering and about finding the motivation that we believe already exists inside of you. Even if it's a tiny little kernel of motivation, it's really about how do we find that, help empower you, inspire you to really make the choices that you want to make that are consistent with your meaning and purpose and values. And so it's really just, that's the piece of motivation. And the interviewing is really just kind of a, just a a way of being and a way of having conversations. It's really, in fact, Bill Miller, one of the founders would say that he really sometimes wishes he called it something different because it's just, it's really not face valid. It's not, it's not about interviewing. And, and my colleagues and I sometimes will get, calls to consult on how to improve the interview process and corporations. <laughs> it's really, that's not, it's not about that. It's just much more a way of having a conversation. So motivational conversations might even be a better term. Excellent. So how does this apply, say, to uh, somebody who's struggling with an issue like, I don't know, time management? Well, you know, Actually, even as you said that, Chris, you know what I felt in my body? I was like, let's fix this, right? Let's like, let's fix this time management problem. And that's generally our go-to, right? Someone presents us with a problem. And if we're a caring, kind human being, we want to fix it. And in motivational learning, we call that our fixing reflex. And I even, I am an expert in this. I like, there are very few things I'll own expertise in. 
And right there, I just, I felt it come up, right? Like, I want to fix that. And that's really where it, so actually, I would say that the first part is noticing that, right? Because we can't fix people. And it's really just about, well, so if someone has an issue with time management, we're going to have a conversation about it and really just help them like manage through more effectively of what's important to them and really just kind of thinking that through for them and thinking, and here's the thing, if someone has an issue with time management, I would bet money that they have already thought about how to fix themselves. And so part of it is really negotiating and helping them navigate that conversation more effectively for themselves. So we're really just kind of partners in the process as opposed to driving it. I really like that idea of of the word, the fixing reflex, because it's so true. It happens internally too, because obviously um, I have an issue with time management. It's uh, partly genetic because I'm half Spanish. It's a cultural piece. But I think that the fixing reflex is, is, I love that term. I'd never heard it because it's true that change is really hard and we feel really upset with ourselves when we can't make these changes. Like what's wrong with me? I know all the answers. I know all the reasons and yet it can be so difficult. I feel motivated and yet I'm not doing it. Yeah. Which feels really terrible. Right. And so if we jump in, so here's the thing, if we let our fixing reflex turn on and we jump in, we actually make someone feel worse, right? Because we make it sound so easy. Yeah. Like it's so easy. Like here it is. Here's how you do it. So if we talked about your, so can you tell me more about the time management? Your Spanish time management. I lived in Spain, by the way, Emma. So I like, I might know a little bit about. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, I don't know. I, I find that I'm more flexible with time than others. I have different ideas of time, but I realize that there are occasions where I really do need to be on time. And I find that really quite hard. Like I just find it hard to be on time. It's almost like it's, it's difficult. I need to, yeah, think about it a lot if I'm going to be on time. So would you be okay if I try and fix it? Like if we play with that for a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's try. Although I'm mildly anxious because I'm feeling like I might fail at it. Listen, it's actually really easy. We're talking about time management. And Emma, there's so many opportunities even around us right now to help you manage your time. In fact, when we were getting ready to record, your Google device was talking to you. So that's like one tool or strategy you already have in your toolbox. You already also know when things are important. So all you have to do is maybe even just put, oh my gosh, this is so easy. You just put those two things together. You let your Google device know when something's really important and then it can let you know when you need to be on time and then you just listen to it, right? Oh my goodness, sounds awful. So I'm not feeling very motivated now. I'm feeling quite deflated. Defeated. That is a new word. That is a new beautiful word. All that, that's a fantastic word. Yeah, um, well, all of that. Well, and that's that's exactly what happens, right? So yeah. fixing reflex shows up. We tell people what to do. We make it sound really easy, and we left them. We leave them feeling deflated and defeated, or deflated. Right? <laughs> it's like, you know, just. So let's see if we could try that. Would, would it be okay if we tried a little bit of a different way? Let's do it. Okay. I, I want to feel better. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm going to start by giving you what we would call an affirmation in motivational interviewing. You're someone who cares a lot about showing up 
and people seeing you for who you are and you're noticing that your time management, timekeeping skills are getting in the way of you being that person. Yeah, that feels better. Well, and you've thought about this a lot already. Yes, I have. I have. I have. So what have you thought about? Like, what are some of the things that you've considered so far of how to make this change? So, for example, in the mornings, I've told myself the time at which I need to be ready to literally run out the door. So I give myself the maximum time at which I need to be ready to leave. And I keep pushing it sort of earlier and earlier because I overstretch it. And I notice actually I make it earlier and actually failing at meeting my targets. But I'm trying to give myself sort of almost like the, the alarm clock to tell myself, right, I need to be out the door by this time in order to make it. And then, yeah, I still seem to struggle with that. Okay. So you've tried sort of working backwards as one tool or strategy. What else have you thought about? I've thought about asking for help, but then I pulled back because my husband, I got my husband involved and that didn't feel right. (laughs) Getting bossed and told how to do it because then he's very good and he thinks I'm overambitious at what I want to do. So I've tried to simplify my mornings, reduce my the things that I do before I go out. So prepare things in the evenings. Get up even earlier. I've tried to do that. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? So you've thought about getting up earlier. You've set sort of a drop dead time. You've asked for help. You've simplified your routine and habits. And so you've already started thinking about this and collecting some data on what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And yet you're still struggling. And so it's still something you want to work on. Yeah. And and this would be where, so in a motivational interviewing stance, one of the things that we do is we ultimately respect what we call your autonomy, right? That you're going to, you're in charge of your life. And that's sort of what you saw a little bit with your husband, right? So when someone yeah. tells us what to do, we kind of bristle or it doesn't really work. And so I, at this point, I would work with you, right, to figure yeah. out and how to help you essentially help yourself, which is why I wrote the book, right? Because that's really ultimately what we do in a motivational interviewing stance is we help people help themselves. And so why not create a self-help version of it? And one of the things I would do, and so this is one of those, you know, little secrets that we have is I would collaborate with you by asking permission. I mean, I did it a couple of times already, but I would say, hey, would it be helpful if I share some of the things I've seen that works for other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's before so I launch into advice. Right. And you could see that feels different, right? I could even, mm-hmm. you know, I could mm-hmm. hear it in your voice and it's just, it feels different when people don't just tell us what to do, but they collaborate with us. Yeah. Well, one so of the cool. things I noticed, Michelle, that you kind of went to right away was, and I think that was an example of what you talk about in your book about self-compassion breaks where you were allowing Emma to like, you know, like, yeah, it's, you know, you're okay. You're not broken. You don't need to be fixed. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Listen, change is hard, right? And I know, like, we give lip service to that often. And I think really the reason I was very deliberate about including self-compassion breaks and which I think go hand in hand with validation, right? Like 
we're all competent human beings who do things really well. Like Emma, you even said your husband thinks like you're being really hard on yourself and you're doing. And so when we kind of fail at little, at making what seems like little easy changes, we beat ourselves up a bit. Right. And so having Mm -hmm. self-compassion and really just incorporating that into any change journey or just, I mean, if we're really honest, any day, right. When we make like little mistakes here or there just really helps us stay engaged because otherwise we beat ourselves up and then, you know, we kind of go off the path. And what I, you know, one of the things I include in the book, right, is called, I use the F word, but I won't use the F word so we don't get like bleeped out here. But, you know, the screw it's <laughs> right, which is just like, screw it. I can't do this. I'm done. Yeah. Whereas the self-compassion allows you to stop and say, you know what, this is actually kind of hard and it makes sense that I'm having mm-hmm. a hard time with. And yeah, I'm going to keep yeah. trying to move towards what's important to me. And I think that's the piece, isn't it? Is that because we know that change is so hard, it's really easy to get into that really critical place. And then we just feel deflated and unmotivated. And then it adds to the self-critical. And we can find ourselves really stuck in that place of, it's just not going to happen. And it's because I'm really bad at this stuff. And it's because I'm not motivated enough or whatever it might be. But coming out of that and recognizing that, you know, change is hard. And it's okay that this matters, even if it is hard and I'm not there yet you know, we might get some movement towards it. So I really like that stance of that, that you said of autonomy. I have permission not to be anywhere near where I wish I was, and that's okay. And I also have permission to want to be somewhere that I'm not yet. That's also okay. Well, And it also, so I think here's the other thing, when you think about helping professionals, or even if we're just a kind person who's helping someone we care about, sometimes we feel like we fail too, right? Mm. And that's also sort of that fixing reflex of like, I can't be in charge of your life. Like I can't, like your husband, I can't follow you around and make you do things and be responsible. No, it doesn't mean I, so I, w- I always make this distinction between acceptance and resignation. It doesn't mean yeah. I'm laying down and I'm not going to try. It just also means I'm going to process and I'm going to accept that this is your autonomy to choose or not choose. And if I'm in a relationship with you where that impacts me, then I'm going to just have to decide how to set boundaries and protect myself. And you do you. Right. And I think this is, you know, I think this is really hard for parents, like really hard for parents. Right. That kids are autonomous human beings, if we're honest. Right. Like we wish they weren't sometimes. And they have their own little minds of themselves, right? Yeah, I was thinking about that, that in terms of parenting and also in terms of couples work, you know, really, you know, allowing your partner, because that sort of fixing reflex, the kind of problem solving is one of the least helpful responses you can have to your partner when your partner shows up with an issue. It can feel very invalidating, disconnecting, like you don't get me, you don't understand where I'm coming from. It can be insulting, like you're suggesting, I don't know what I'm talking about, which is probably, you know, often similar with adolescence, like, how dare you? But instead being able to adopt a place where the stance where, you know, it's okay if, you know, where you're at. And it's okay when I'm, how I feel about where you're at, too. The fact that I'm, I'm not very happy about this stance. Right. Or 
you know, I need some time to think about how I feel about your position. It's so much more liberating, but so difficult because it really isn't our reflex. Our reflex is to get in there and get rid of that problem because this person is now a problem because of the position they're, they're taking. Totally. So, yeah, I really, it's, I hadn't thought of motivational interviewing in this way, actually. From a relational um, perspective, actually. Uh, well, so here's a fun here's a fun fact. I really lucky. I learned motivational learning straight out of university. I was working on a trial where I got exposed to it. So how I mean, how lucky am I? Right? Like I wasn't even in graduate school, and I got to facilitate training clinicians in motivational learning. So I was like helping mm-hmm. the trainer. And I, for some reason, and I can't remember if he said it or if I just took it away. But the way I learned motivational learning was as operationalizing good therapeutic rapport, right? So that if you do motivational learning really well, you're helping to align and have a good relationship with people that you're working with. And I, I still truly believe that if, and because we also have ways of managing discord and challenges in the relationship, and it really does facilitate engagement in the process mm-hmm. and in the relationship. And I think that's, you know, I'm a big advocate, like I wish more people had it early in their career, because I just think it helps us, like figure out how to do all the other stuff well. Um, and so it's not just about the process of engaging in a change, but it's also throughout the whole process. So if you're doing acceptance and commitment therapy, or cognitive behavioral therapy, or you're doing any teaching someone how to floss or brush their teeth, like I worked with dentists and hygienists at some point, it helps to have these tools on board Mm -hmm. to have these conversations or trying to get your kid to not use their phone so often or whatever it is. So true. Yeah, it is really true. I mean, in the world of parenting, I can, you know, as we're talking about it, I can really see how it, it reduces the pressure on on us as parents to think that, you know, we have to fix the problem because that becomes pressure for us too. But it also means that we need to be okay with having that difference in opinion and being able to listen and really hear them out because they will have an opinion and an idea and a reason why they are where they are. And that ability to listen is crucial really. And yet so hard. It's really hard. I do a lot of couples work and I try and sort of do light motivational interviewing training for the couple. And that's the hardest thing is getting the partners to listen. And I, you know, I say listen and really listen, not just wait to talk. Yeah. So that you're really listening to understand what someone's trying to communicate. And then you're really leveraging what an MI we would call reflections to reflect back to really check in that you're actually heard what they were trying to communicate. It's really, it's no one teaches that. No one teaches us that stuff. And the reality is, and this is, you know, sort of one of those dirty little secrets is we're all so busy that we don't feel like we have time (laughs) to do that. Right. Like even as I'm talking about it, it's like, Oh, that's, that feels like I have to slow down and really listen and, like, I just don't have the time for that. Like, I just, I'm moving so quickly, right? That's often what we hear with folks of some of the challenges of doing this. I, when I work with couples, I say, if you get really good at this, it's so much faster than arguing. Yes. If you get really good at listening, you can be very efficient. <laughs> you don't have to take a long time. But if you're really good at it, like, it's really authentic and very genuine. It's a lot faster than getting into a big old argument. 
about whatever the situation is. I was just going to, you know, say that there's always this sense of urgency. There is a problem and it needs to be fixed now. People don't, or people have lost the capacity, if, if we ever had it, to uh, just sit with feelings or sit with situations. And that's like, and actually, so that's one of my favorite ways of connecting is to reflect back like emotions, right? So that because people are so cerebral too, when they're talking about things that it's very on the surface, very cognitive, and they're missing some of their feelings. And so they're just so trying to reflect back and connect on that and slow things down. So you actually can experience it, which is why the other the other thing I included in the book, which is, so I feel like the book is a little bit of a, it's motivational interviewing with a hodgepodge of all of my other favorite, like evidence-based like practices. It's like, you know, like motivational interviewing is like the base of the soup. And then there's like, you know, the carrots are a little bit of act, you know, the celery is a little bit of self-compassion. And then there's, you know, some potatoes that are dialectical behavior therapy, right? And so wise mind. Um, is such a core piece of the work I do is but raising that awareness, which means stopping, slowing down and thinking about which state of mind are you in? Is emotion mind driving this or are you rational mind driving this? And what is sort of that intersection and what's the wise minded values driven, whatever you want to call it, approach going forward? And I think you're right, Chris, like it's getting people to stop and notice and find your feet, right? So that's like one of my favorite, like I'm often talking with patients about finding your feet. It's like, hey, find your feet. Like, where are they at? Woo, they've been there the whole time, right? And now we're in this moment and now we're more aware. And I always find my feet when I say that to patients too. Like I just noticed they're like crossed. <laughs> I'm, like, one, I'm like, how did they get crossed over there? But we're just so, it's so rare that we stop and we notice and we drop in. And then also, which, you know, I think ACT does really well of noticing your body and like, you know, Emma, you were even saying like, you know, it, you could feel it in your chest, like the anxiety. Like it's just people, we just, that takes a moment, right? It takes a second and getting people to stop and slow down. So we do this a lot. So I, you know, I teach motivational learning also in the organizational corporate settings and getting leaders to slow down and wow. leverage these skills is not easy. No, I can imagine it's not. It just goes against everything we're thinking, you know. I remember I was just thinking about that this morning that, you know, I'm, I've got a lot on my plate at the moment. And we did a podcast that just launched today on subtraction with... Lady Klotz. And it's all about the idea of subtracting versus adding. You know, we just keep adding into our lives, creating more yes. anxiety and more stress. And actually, sometimes the answer is to take things out of our life. And so... Thinking about what you're saying is that, you know, taking a moment to stop and slow down goes against what we're thinking is the answer when we're really rushed and anxious and stressed. We're just thinking we just got to get the things done and then we'll feel less stressed. But actually, it doesn't work like that um, in practice. I was thinking it was Titnatan who said something to the effect of, you know, everybody should meditate. And when you don't have time, you should meditate more. So this idea that we need to spend more time taking breaks when we have less time, which is kind well, of a, a paradox. It kind of feels 
yeah, it doesn't. It's counterintuitive more than a paradox. Along those lines, Kelly Wilson says, you know, you know, we don't have much time, so we need to slow down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Much better than yeah. what I just said. Exactly. Oh, I love that. And I so I try if I'm working with busy healthcare providers or busy leaders, I often will, you know, talk about how it feels slower and you're often getting deeper, more effective and bonus. I really think, and there's some emerging data to support this, that doing something like motivational reviewing, slowing down, actually reduces burnout. That you really, because the other time, like imagine your fixing reflex is on all the time and you're just like, gotta do, gotta do, gotta do, gotta do. You're like running. You're just activated all the time. Um, and so I often say when I'm really leaning in and doing motivational review and even felt it a little bit, Emma, when we were kind of doing a little bit of the role play earlier, you know, I lean, I actually lean out, right? I sit back because I'm making space for the person I'm having the conversation with to, to do the work. And so I'm listening really intently and mindfully. And I almost imagine that my heart rate goes down. And in fact, there's, this is sort of a funny aside, but, but there's a horse whisperer called Monty Roberts, who we often use some of his training tapes in motivational interviewing trainings, because he is very much, he very much does what we do with humans he does it with horses when he's sort of training a horse to to ride to take a saddle and ride he does it very calmly very much in the moment very much like noticing and very thoughtful and he's just like and he has this line where he says my heart rate doesn't go up a tick and he's just being really present and slowing down right like kelly wilson and i just i think that's just something that's really hard to do sometimes when we're so motivated to help people, we feel just like we we're just going, I got to like coach, I got to push, I got to, they got to do, it's just like, you know what, maybe we just got to sit and I got to lean back and listen and really help fi- them find the internal intrinsic motivation to change as opposed to pushing them from behind. So talk about cultivating internal motivation. Yeah. Well, I would say it's there already, even if it's a tiny little kernel, and it's about helping someone connect with it. And a lot of times, they're just, it's there, but they've just been so disconnected, right? So the in the book, one of the things I have, one of the exercises is this change master of the past, right? And I do that very intentionally, because I can't tell you how many times I sit across from someone who's trying to make a change, just like Emma, trying to be more on time. And the reality is they've actually had some success with something in the past, likely something like it, maybe even exactly like it, right? And so that it's helping them connect with that that ability, which is a piece of the motivation, right? So the self-efficacy to do it. And then really thinking about all of the reasons why. And Emma gave us a little bit of that, right? With like who she wants to be and how important this is with her to who she sees herself as. And that's a piece of connecting with the, well, what's important to me? What are my values? And how do I act in line with those? And that's really helping people align with and seeing the gaps, right? Because a lot of times that's actually what's causing kind of the angst, right? Is the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And that's what's motivating or mobilizing 
and sometimes people just don't think they could do it. So then they like, yes, like I feel I'm motivated. And then they like bottom out. And so that's really where kind of it's putting those things together of both the helping you connect with the why, like finding your why, and then seeing it all the way through to, well, how am I actually going to do this? And realizing that failure is probably going to be a part of the process. And so that's where some of the self-compassion comes in too, of like, well, how do I stay in that process? And it's really, it's what we used to call, there's four, we used to call the four processes of motivational interviewing. Now we call it the four tasks, right? Of really engaging in the process, figuring out a focus that's very much values aligned, and then evoking some of that internal intrinsic and reinforcing that motivation and then planning. But it's like overlapping stair steps. So we don't go in a linear process. I mean, sure, it might feel linear and it might be linear for some people, but it's very individual. And I think that, you know, I got to say, I think that's one of the harder pieces of motivational interviewing is there, there really is no manual. There's no protocol to follow. And so it's really you're figuring out the person in front of you. And how do I get creative and use some of the tools or strategies to help draw out that intrinsic internal motivation, reinforce it and help leverage that to move them in the direction that they feel is important, right? That's why, you know, it's about the life you want to live, not the life I want you to live. It's like the life you want and choose. And and that's, it's very affirming, you know, to say, you know, you get to choose the life you want and I can help you do that. It's, it's saying you trust this person to be able to do what's healthy and, and good for them, as opposed to, you know, left to my own devices, I'm going to be just, you know, a slob and, you know, <laughs> never meet any of my obligations because my, you know, self-concept is one of being flaky and, you know, lazy. But by having somebody affirm my power and my autonomy and my ability to do this, it makes me it makes me want to step up. I'm actually drinking coffee from a cup that says, be the person your dog thinks you are. Um, <laughs> you know, even though I don't have a dog, but, uh, and my cat doesn't think about me at all. Uh, but, but just having that sort of affirmation of like, you know, yeah, people think I'm okay. People think I'm capable. That, that motivates me. A hundred percent. And I think that's really hard to hold on to when you've seen people fail, right? And so they so they don't see that in themselves. And if you're sitting across from them and it's just time after time, you've got to just help them reconnect with that internal piece of, you know, what are their strengths and what do they do well and what do they want and what are they capable of? And this happens all the time with, in fact, I, as you were talking, Chris, I was thinking about someone I saw yesterday and who, this is literally the conversation. Her family just doesn't think she's capable of moderating her drinking. And she's, it's really tough for her because they're infringing on her autonomy and who likes to be told what to do, right? And so she will get told what to do and she'll bristle against it. And then it actually just creates this negative affect. The relationship isn't strong with her family members or gets kind of impacted by that. And then she's less likely to meet her goals as opposed to we're like, listen, you know yourself, you're capable, you're competent, you're going to figure this out. And I'm your partner in that. And so then the last part of it is like, hey, how could I help you? Right? Like, how how could I help you meet your goals? Like, tell me that the autonomy is also in how you choose to use me as your helper. 
right? And I think that's the other piece of how do we, and think about, I mean, this, like, yes, we could talk about all of the really clear places that this shows up, adolescence and, you know, addictions, which is where MI was born, and really anywhere, right? Like, people want to be thought of as a autonomous and competent people in choosing their goals and also in choosing how people help them. Now, again, like I said earlier, those people around you can make decisions that they don't want to be involved or engaged because they just can't. That's their boundary to set, too, because guess what? They're also autonomous beings. And so this is where it really helps to have a therapist who can like, navigate some of these different things or just having the awareness, right, of how all of this different stuff comes to play. But really, at the end of the day, it's about communicating and really having effective communication and listening, right? Listening to yourself and listening to other folks and then having those conversations together, which is, it's so much easier said than done. It really is. And and it's quite possible, right? I, I wouldn't have written a book and be sitting here with you if I didn't believe it's possible. It's just, how do we help people do that more effectively? Yeah. Well, I, Emma knows that I always have to throw in a quote from somebody Usually it's Mark Twain, but no, it makes me think of a, a quote I came across from Goethe, who said, if you treat a man as he is, he will remain as he is. But if you treat a man as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become what he ought to be and could be. And I used to think about that a lot, you know, working with, you yeah. know, particularly with adolescents, that I'm going to treat you as if, you know, you are the person that you can become. I love that. And that sort of that, you know, here's one of the other like, you know, dirty little secrets about everything we're talking about. Like you just quoted, like, I don't know what, do you know what time period that quote's from? When was Goethe around uh, 1700s? Yeah, exactly. This is, even if you're wrong on that, this is not new science, right? This is not like new, this is not new stuff. It's, we all, we know this stuff and we, it's been around for a long time. It's just, we don't always know how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And really thinking about, you know, the biggest piece is how do we stop doing the other stuff that mm-hmm. is so seductive to us and let go of telling people what to do and making it seem so easy and, you know, thinking that if I just lecture someone into change, they'll change when mm-hmm. the reality is there's it's so much more complicated. And if someone is truly stuck... Motivational interviewing, even if they're not truly stuck, right? If they're somewhere stuck, motivational interviewing is going to help draw out that motivation, consolidate it, and do help help you as a helper do that more effectively, and then help the person become that person mm-hmm. that they're meant to be, as opposed to us pushing them towards it, right? That's parents right. have the well, hardest time doing that. <laughs> well, and you, as you said, you know, you get that reactance going where Mm. people get their back up about being told what to do whether it's Mm -hmm. you know you need to be on time or you need to stop smoking or whatever by the way goethe was born in 1749 thank you you, google (laughs) Uh, but but yeah i mean just just creating that space which is hard it's really hard it's so hard i mean it's that it's that needing to control someone else's behavior because the behavior is so hard for us so if I think of from the adolescent's perspective, you know, if they're doing something that we're finding really difficult, then we, you know, as a parent or even as a, you know, as a friend or 
or someone else, the impulse is you've got to get rid of that problem because the, the feeling difficult is a problem. The feeling that we have when we are presented with a behavior we don't like, that discomfort is a problem we want to get rid of. And actually being, it's almost like this, you know, we've just got to get better at being uncomfortable. <laughs> autonomy, giving people autonomy means that we need to be okay. Okay, we need to get comfortable with the feelings that will show up by giving somebody autonomy and giving yeah. them permission to be who they are in the same way that we want to be given permission. But that's really difficult. And it goes against our sort of those reflexes, those instincts to sort of get rid of discomfort and of problems with this phenomenal sort of problem solving machine that we carry above our shoulders. Totally. And, you know, I'm, you know, I do a lot of work with across a variety of different disorders, but anxiety, I'm often talking about, you know, anxiety is uncomfortable, but not dangerous. Mm -hmm. How do we sit with that anxiety? And how do we, you know, help someone sit with that anxiety too, and Mm -hmm. move in the direction of what's important to them, right? And even as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, I have an 11 year old who is very independent, and very responsible, and one day said that she announced that she was going to ride her bike downtown to go get like a smoothie or something by herself. And I, my anxiety went straight and I was just, and I had to notice it. And then I had, this is where it, you know, wise mind comes in. Cause I was like, that's emotion mind. Rational mind is she's smart. She's competent. She's capable. We live in a small town. She knows how to ride her bike. She'll have a phone with her. And wise mind was like, okay, I feel this anxiety. And part of emotion mind is also like being kind of excited for her, right? That she was willing to do this and be kind of risky. And I needed to just kind of settle in and then just reinforce her autonomy and then reflect it back. Like you're really excited about going downtown and you've thought this through and you're going to make really great decisions. And then I just needed to sit with it. Right. And, you know, and watch her phone, like, you know, like a hawk. (laughs) Thank you, technology on some levels. But it's, it really is, I think that our own, you know, sometimes we talk about co-regulation in the world of how do we regulate ourselves to help other people regulate themselves. And I think that's a piece of motivational interviewing, but a piece of just good human relationships of, we've got to be really thoughtful about not like when our fixing reflex shows up or, you know, any of that stuff, it's just noticing it breathing, finding our feet, and then trying to think through what would be the most helpful thing for me to say, do, or ask in that moment that actually might move this person in the direction of their values and goals. And that's, you know, that's the compassion piece in motivational interviewing is we really try hard to not impose our own values and goals on the people we work with because it's so easy to do, right? It's so easy. And we're all just so different from different parts. I mean, as evidenced by, you know, the three of us sitting here right now, like, you know, one one at, uh, you know, 6 a.m., one at 9 a.m., and one at 9 p.m., right? Even just that, it's, it's like, you know, it's just how do we meet those, each individual where they're at and help them be that person that they want to be or that their dog thinks they are, right? <laughs> yeah. So in the few minutes we have left, how should we, uh, what should we leave our listeners with? You know, I think, so it's funny, part of me is like, well, it's up to them, right? And they're taking away. And I often ask at the end of sometimes a session or a training or a workshop I give of like, what's stuck with you? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like what did you notice in yourself during the time that you listen to this episode and what are you taking away? And, you know, if you're willing to, I would even say like, Hey, pull out a sticky note or, you know, like I have on my Mac, like the app for sticky notes and write yourself a little note so that you actually remember or send yourself a voicemail because sometimes we have these insights Mm -hmm. about anything, right? So maybe they have an insight about themselves and their own behavior change journey, or maybe it's about a conversation they were having about something they care about. Let it stick with you and don't let it just be fleeting. And so how can you remember to do that, right? And that, I think that's the piece of, it's just getting, figuring out how to keep something stuck with you and not just letting it fleeting. Cause I think that's also one of those pieces of the behavior change journey is how do we keep it, you know, in act, we use like the thoughts as hands. Right. And so I often put my hands in front of my eyes and think about, you, you actually want that something to be in front of you. So you see it and are reminded of it. So you actually can move towards it. Yeah, absolutely. This has been an incredible conversation, Michelle. Got so much to take away with me, actually. And, uh, and you know, so many thoughts about, you know, motivation and autonomy. I particularly love this piece around autonomy and, you know, how difficult it is and yet how beautiful. Could you imagine living in a world where we all were, gave each other permission to just be, you know, what a compassionate place that would be. Totally. And again, the book is Motivational Interviewing, The Motivational Interviewing Path to Personal Change, the essential workbook for creating the life you want. And that will be available from New Harbinger Publications on all the usual sites as well. But it's a fantastic book and a great contribution. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was was a fun conversation and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.